Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Allison Hunter, a journalist, educator, activist, and the mother of two black sons. She currently is editor-in-chief of WOUB News and has more than two decades experience in commercial television from Cleveland and Cincinnati to Chicago and Los Angeles. Allison talks with the Spectrum podcast about race and racism she's seen and confronted in the news business, as well as the perils of raising two black sons in today's environment. For this conversation, we're joined by Judge Gail Williams Byers of the South Euclid Municipal Court. She is part of our continuing coverage of race and racism in America. Allison, you you are the perfect person to talk with because you're a journalist. Uh, you've had over 20 years experience in commercial television. Now you've been in public television. You're an educator. You're a, an activist and, and you're a mom of two, of two college age sons. So how do you, do you compartmentalize all of those different roles or do they blend together? Um, they, well, they are who I am, right? So at some point they're, they're all, they're all there. I, I don't do, I don't do so well at compartmentalization. Um, so it was a struggle, you know, when you're a young professional and you don't have, um, any, you know, children or anyone else to look after, you can be at work all day and you really get to understand who you are as different um, situations or events happen. And you really have to, and you're young in your twenties and um, you're figuring it out. You're figuring it all out for you. What does it mean for you to be who you are? And that at that time, it might just be for me, like a young black woman. What does it mean for me to be a young black woman in this space? Or, or are they saying that to me um, are they not hearing me because wh what do I look like here? Um, and so um, I was fortunate in my first newsroom to have a black news director and black producers. So, um, and that was in Dayton, Ohio. And um, that, that was helpful 
that was very helpful and gave me some language. And I knew if I was messing up, it was because I was messing up. It wasn't because I was black. And so then you get into different spaces and then you're like, oh, wait a minute, this doesn't look like a mess up according to how I was taught and it got me this job. So why are you talking to me this way? Or why are you now? Is it because I'm young? Is it because I'm a woman? Is it because I'm black? Uh, what, you know, which is it? And that's not necessarily a question I would ask to a person. I would try to figure it out for myself. Um, and internally, and maybe in a way initially, like, what can I change? Well, okay, I can get really good at my job. Then I'm, then I'm undeniable. Um, but then also you start to you start to understand that um, you start to understand that um, wait a minute now that's got me doing a lot of twists and turns and um, trying to contort like am I trying to contort my behavior or is it my you know just my work okay my work is undeniable and you still have a problem with me or there still seems to be some some issue. Um, now, then I would say, is it because I'm young? You know, I'm wondering, is it because I'm black? Is it because I'm a woman? Is it, am I, am I a jerk? Like, what is it? And if I could, if it got boiled down to because I was either um, young, black, or a woman, like, well, those are the things that I am. And so that's, <clears throat> I can't change that. So I just have to stay on mission. There's a reason why I came to work today. And if I let you throw me off, that's, you know, that's just not good. That's not what I came here for. And so, um, and so there, so you learn how to push back or you learn, you know, and I'm not saying there's some things I'm sure I let slide um, because I wasn't sure how to respond. Sometimes you get stunned or there's some things where just like, okay, um, hmm, how do I want to, how do I want to um, respond? And then there are times when it would come right back out and and it's all valid as you're learning how to be in the workspace. Everybody has to learn that. Everyone should have to learn that. Some people don't. Some people just walk in and think that, you know, everybody's going to love them and the sky is going to just stay. <laughs> things are just going to go their way. And I, beautiful. That's lovely. I wish. I wish. Um, but understanding that everyone's not going to like me, but... You will, you will respect me. And if I'm doing a good job, you will not get in my way. You will not get in my way. That's not the point of this. So, so, uh, so to answer your question, so, right, blah, blah, blah. But to answer your question, so it brings all of that into bear. So when you're at, when you're in the workplace as a young single, you're going through that on your own. You start, you have children. Now you're, you're like, oh yeah, no, who am I really? Because I have to instill my values into my children or I have to help guide them with the values that I have and that are changing and all of that. Then that, then it becomes that much harder to compartmentalize if you ever could, because then you're at work and you're like, oh, if I, if I let this slide, this slide, what kind of individual am I? And how do I, what do I tell my children? So um, then I think all of that, and you start examining how you grew up. My mother was an activist. Um, so my family were activists, you know, and, and then I have family that are, are fighters, also just like activists in their own way, um, that where they will not be trifled with. And so, um, and others were like, okay, well, let's, let's discuss, let's figure this out. So 
Yeah, it all it all blends in because we're whole we're whole beings or we're attempting to be whole beings. And at work is just what I do. Sometimes when I'm away from my family or children or whatever, you know, the job, excuse me, the job is just what I do. Work is all of it while I'm here on the on the earth. Allison, I think that's a great assessment. Um, and I also applaud your ability, um, and I do say ability, to not compartmentalize, even if it's purposeful, because I'll tell you, I I personally have um, found the need to masterfully compartmentalize. Um, and it's become sort of a survival tool. Mm-hmm. And when I think of that, um, ironically, interestingly enough, I think about how slaves must have necessarily needed to compartmentalize mm-hmm. just as a form of daily survival, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. just to make it from one day to the next. If you can imagine, you know, trying to to maintain just the mental wherewithal to get from one day to the next, knowing that your your child was ripped from your arms, mm-hmm. but you still needed to you know, focus so that you could, you yourself could stay alive, that Mm -hmm. the person that you loved and had committed yourself to even in a marriage that wasn't sanctioned was now, you know, sold three states over. You Mm -hmm. had to somehow get past that hurt and anguish in order to pick cotton or, you know, harvest tobacco or whatever, because that was a life or death situation or circumstance. And so it is that ability, I think, that we take from that, our ancestors, to to where we are now, and that we actually have the ability to either adopt it or reject it, depending on what our circumstances are. I mean, for me personally and even professionally, you know, I've learned that, you know, just like you said, not everybody's going to hate you, but you demand that they respect you. I love that. So that's going to be my my new motto. I might even make some t-shirts out of it. <laughs> We're gonna be a lot of t-shirt, a lot of t-shirt moments. Yes, lots of t-shirts. I'm gonna set up a hot dog and a t-shirt stand. Um, right. One's gonna finance the other, but um, it's the idea that um, you know you can use those concepts sort of interchangeably. You know, the idea that I don't have to compartmentalize in order to survive. And conversely, you know, there are times when I necessarily have to so that I can survive, even Absolutely. still. And, you know, it's especially as as black people, you you just necessarily have to, you know, sometimes pick or choose in order to move to that next level. And I think your your um, comments were so extraordinarily insightful um, in that regard, understanding that. Now, I wonder what kind of conversations do you have with your sons? Because I think as parents nowadays and in, in this time, we're having very different conversations with our children about what that compartmentalization means and what their freedom to choose looks like. Because, I mean, those freedoms are still extraordinarily limited. And I even think our conversations with our children based on their gender uh-huh. is very different. We aren't having the same conversations with young women that we're having with young black men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, to everything you said, absolutely. I mean, I, the, the, the ability to compartmentalize is became hard for me. It's a certain, you have to have a discipline and an order. And I value that. And there are 
times when I just was like, how come I can't just be this, this way and this, this way, you know? Um, but cause I could go to work and be at work all day, you know? And then, so I guess in a sense I compartmentalize cause I could just, I'm here. And then when I get home, I don't want to talk about work. Um, and when I'm work, I don't really want to, well, I would talk about my kids, but, um, I can't have my kids at work. Like, you know, my focus is all off and all of that, but like who I am fundamentally, it didn't, it couldn't, it couldn't work for me. I couldn't turn it off. And, um, and it, it made me ill, like physically ill, you know, and I'm like, okay, I can't let people make me sick. So who am I, you know, what am I going to do about it? Stop asking the question of what they are going to do. I had to have that realization. I was worried about a work situation I was in. And, um, and I was like, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? And then it came to me really clear. What am I going to do? Because this is my story. I have to figure this out. This is my life. And so the conversations I've tried to always have with my sons, um, and you're right, um, absolutely, about um, who they are and their father having also, you know, um, obviously um, having those conversations and very different conversations, male to male conversations, man to man. Um, but for me, it was. And this was a hard one because I say, and I, and I, oh gosh, I'd stop the world for my sons and have tried, you know, in, in very different ways. Like you're not going to mess with my kids. You know, you're going to treat them right. You're going to treat them fairly. You know, if they're being knuckleheads, they're not being knuckleheads, but that's not any worse than anybody else, you know? And so, um, but the conversation I would have is you do what you need to do to fulfill who you are and you got to know who you are. And I, and that's one of the things when I would, you know, they go to an event or um, go off to school, I'd say, remember who you are. That's the, that's the one thing that I know I said, and I love you, right? Remember who you are when you're stepping away from here, you know, and that's who you are and name who you are just as an individual. And then as it gets to the, the actual, um, the, the dangerous conversation real because what does that really mean and now we have we can see we've always had history and we've always told those stories um but in the remember who you are and act accordingly whatever that means to you and i'd say and i say i will ride for you if something horrible happens to you at the hands of another who is on a power trip or something or whatever that is you know that I am going to ride for you in, in life and in death. And that's a horrible, it, it, it sounds like I'm giving up, but I'm not. It just says that I want you to make the best decisions for you at any given time. And I will know that, I will know that you did that. And then it's for me to take your message further. And I mean, it's a, what is, um, Philando Castile's mother called it the effed up mother's club. And it's like, I have no desire to be in that club, but no, and, and I will not have my children live in fear. I, I, I can't do it. I can't, I can't do it. I'd be mindful. Understand it's not going to probably not going to go your way. You're a man, you're a boy. I used to tell them that as boys. You better watch how you watch how you behave, watch how, how you talk to people. And I'm not saying kowtow, but just understand it can be taken a certain way. 
as a male, mind your behavior, it's always going to be your fault. As a black man, wow, we have enough history. So stay mindful. And if some injustice comes your way, you do what you think you are supposed to do in that moment. And I will ride for you. Taking that, the, the next step, Allison, uh, I know, you know, all of the recent shootings and, and killings, uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, uh, uh, so many, so many. What do you tell your sons and what do you tell yourself about activism and what needs to be done and what your and your boys' role are in doing that? So you have to do something. And there are a lot of things that can be done but we tried to raise our sons at, with the knowledge that they are a part of a community. Even if we weren't always out, you know, at the mission or anything, you know, not doing 5K walks all the time and all of that, but you are a part of the community. You're not here by yourself and you have, you, you have work to do as someone on this planet. And you have to look out for those who um, are having trouble are, are having trouble looking out for themselves, or just so you see something wrong, injustice, and so, um, so that so yep they've been at protests. One um, got hit by a cop at a protest, and it it shook me, and it shook what I, I was like. Okay, you said they got to do what they have to do. Um, in a situation, what, what would have happened, you know? And so everything I just told you about how I try to arm my children as they head out the door, you know, was to find out that somebody put their hands on them. And I'm like, yep, but he's here telling me the story. And that, that just fueled him to be at more protests. And um, so you have to do something. You have to understand that this is whatever space you're in at work, at play, Remember who you are. And um, and try to and change what isn't right. Work toward changing what isn't right. So and I, and I say whatever that looks like, because in, in any space you in, in any space you walk in and you making black history, just being there. And that doesn't mean you're so exceptional and all that. That just means you are in that space representing. It's a heavy burden. And we wish we could just be people. And sometimes you don't want to have to be warriors and all of that. And there are people who have been able to say, I'm not going to do it. I'm just here for myself. I guess that's great. That's just not how what I was taught. And that's not what I'm teaching. Hopefully that's not what you know the boys are getting from me. Or the men, shoot, I can't even call them boys. Do, do they come to you, though, and say... Why do we still have to do this? Why why is this still a reality in our lives? And perhaps even more a reality today than it ever has been? I don't know if I get the why. It's the understanding that it is what it is. White supremacy is what it is, you know, 
colonization is a hell of a drug. I mean, it's, um, it's a, I hope it's not a resigned understanding like that, that this is just how it's always going to be, but you know, they see what it is. And so, um, but there, you know, but the head shakes, of course. And we have, when there is a, 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 a an event that is publicized and they are um, good about talking to me about events that I hadn't even heard of or situations that happened in their, in their circle or in a nearby, you know, in distant friends or something. Um, and it's kind of the head shake, like, pfft, you know, we could do, we could be doing so much more if we didn't have to fight this you know, as black people, as humans, as, you know, whatever, in whatever space. So, so yeah, they, like everyone, you know, you're offended, you know, um, you're sickened and then resolve. Because who looks at some of these situations and says, it's okay, I don't get it. Why are you trying to explain that away? I mean, how do you feel about human life? What do you do with your anger, though? I mean, you have to be angry. Oh, I'm very angry. And I mean, and I express it and I have a right to be angry. You know, <laughs> Chuck D, I have a right to be hostile. My people have been persecuted, you know, the whole public enemy. I mean, I fashion myself, um, you know, a warrior. And so I, I, I feel OK about being angry and understanding that I have to control it, too for the for the big picture and strategize and so um, but there are times when it gets the, the you know when it's out and, and i'm i feel like i'm at home um you know just wanting to sit still and listen to earth wind and fire and you know shaka khan and my music and stevie wonder and funkadelic and just like okay let me just let me just sit still because it's too much and i when i feel like i'm I'm going to, I need to be, or I am catatonic for just that, like, oh my gosh, it's coming from every angle. I mean, I, maybe I should ask when going back to, I ask my sons, do they feel like, oh, why do we still have to do this? I feel like that. I mean, I feel like that more than they might. Um, but it is what it is also. So, I mean, I can't put a whole bunch of energy into trying to change what has happened, but um, moving forward, um, we're going to, we're all going to progress. We have to, I, we have to. And so, yeah, my mother was an activist. I was built around, you know, I just, my family didn't just let things be. Gail, you haven't let things be either. Is, is what Allison's saying resonating with you? In so many ways, um, I I just am such a kindred spirit to everything that um, you've said, Allison, because so much of it is is reflective of, um, if not my life personally, I think you can probably agree that um, where it's not my our lives personally is someone we know, which is often considered an extension of our lives, right? Right. Um, it's always, you know, sort of that person we know that we've sort of adopted as a leaf on our family tree. Um, and so we can 
intimately relate to um, the experiences that no doubt help to shape who we become um, and how we approach um, circumstances, um, good and bad. Uh, when it comes to, you know, some of those less than comfortable experiences, which I have hmm. um, had more than my share I bet. of I bet. them um, and continue to um, have them. I will say that, yeah, indeed, they have been less than, than comfortable, but, you know, they have also provided me some of the most valuable growth opportunities uh-huh. that I don't know that I would have had if I had had the luxury of of comfort throughout this um, this time frame in my life. Right. Even before um, taking the bench, I had been you know a prosecutor for almost a decade and doing um, you know I, I, what I I thought was some extraordinary work, but it was very um, intense. Um, and it also was a, a very competitive environment because right. it's it's a ladder system, right? Everybody wants to sort of make it to the top of the ladder and, and get the high profile cases. And I actually was fine without the high profile cases, although I always, you know, I frequently ended up in front of a camera one way or another. And then I, you know, parlayed from there, um, from that competitive environment to an environment that I thought would you know, hey, I'm, I'm less exposure. This it's a small city, more like a town than a city. And, you know, I'm just the, the municipal judge, right? Only to realize that it is, you know, perhaps one of the most unwelcoming, um, racially unwelcoming environments that mm-hmm. has the nerve to be wonderfully diverse in composition. So you just wonder how the two mm-hmm. could coexist. Mm-hmm. Um, under those circumstances. And yet it does. And it is extraordinarily racially abrasive, um, particularly when it comes to leadership, but masterful in at least putting on the facade of being welcoming. And that is a very interesting juxtaposition. And And dangerous. extremely, extremely, because it can be deceptive um, and it could actually lull some into putting down their guards and not being vigilant and not questioning authority and not insisting on better or more or accountability at all. And you can sort of assume that it's baked into the cake. And just sort of turn a blind eye and just sort of allow things to run on autopilot, even if they're not um, running in the manner that we would expect governments to run. And so that's what I see. And then all the while, you know, you just have some of the most, you know, nefarious and malevolent folks that are in leadership positions that, you know, at every turn, pulling out every stop would do anything to, you know, unseat highly positioned Blacks. Uh And there there is no other explanation for it. Um, And I'll be honest, I slow walked myself even to that determination because it just seemed that unbelievable in this day and age. But I think we know what it is. And being the parent of a young Black male, you know, having to explain that 
these are not things limited to the history books, right? We, we, you know, thought at one time that, you know, we just needed to talk to our kids about how this affected us historically, but we can really, you know, move ourselves to the chorus of we shall overcome. We're not mm-hmm. stuck in the verses. We can, we can sing the chorus and talk about it in past tense and know that this is behind us and we are, you know, we're, we've, we've overcome. Right. And to know that that's not really the case. Um, and to know that racism, whereas before it was conversations limited to the water coolers and the office, mm-hmm. it's now just open banter um, in the hallways, the elevators, the, you know, the cafeterias, you name it. It just shows us that's where we are. And so I say that to say, you know, the things that you you indicate, I find myself sitting at the feet of my, you know, 70 plus year old parents and hearing their experiences. My dad, who's born and raised in Cleveland um, during the, the race riots. My mother, who's from a tiny town in southern Georgia, so far south, you got to fly into Tallahassee to drive, drive up to her town. Mm. Um who spent her life as a young child never being able to go to the front door of a white person was always relegated to the back door. And so as an adult, when she came to Cleveland as part of the great migration, um, vowed that for her, no one would ever be permitted to come to her back door. Everyone comes through the front door because she always recalls that experience of being a a young child and even, you know, coming into her own as a young woman and still being referred to as girl. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those things, and you sit at their feet and you hear these stories and these experiences and, um, and to know that, you know, yesterday is extremely similar to today in so many respects. And so, what we are passing to our children, your sons, my son, and in this generation is still more work to be done. Yep. Still more good trouble to get into. Yep. Still the the verses and not yet the chorus of we shall overcome. But it doesn't mean we rest on our laurels. It means that we still have the duty to keep working keep trying and keep at it. Absolutely. Absolutely. When um, there was a time and there are times when, um, you know, I feel like my, my sons are, or when I felt like my sons were not engaged and like, Oh, you just living life. Life's great. Huh? (laughs) You just, um, and reminding them, and wishing I didn't have to. I was like, do I sound like the crazy lady that's saying they're coming for you? Like, they're always going to come for you? Like, what, what, what do I sound like? But also letting them, trying to warn, like, okay, I'm telling you, um, there's going to be a moment, you know, and Paul Mooney has a great, you know, name for it, when you are really going to have to decide or you're going to get an idea of how you're, how you're viewed. Let's put it that way. You know who you are, but you're going to get an idea of how you're viewed and it's going to rock your whole world. And, um, and you still have to show up as a, 
as a proud black man with ancestors who prayed and worked and survived for you. You will not be able to just shake it off. You have to, you have to show up. And, um, you know, it's that moment when you realize, okay, what kind of, oh, I'm black in this space. What am I going to do about it? And, um, but they've all had their moments, right? They had their moments themselves. And now with everything that's going on visible, because thank you for the phones. And then, you know, and, and, and the explicitness, let's say, so we're in the explicit era of, you know, the civil rights fight. And, um, okay, now what are you gonna do? You, <laughs> it's right here. And, um, and they and they do it. They, they, I'd like to think they're, you know, we all are fighters in our in our way, and and we have to, we have to. We want it to be better. We want to, you know, who wants to keep having to fight on survival? We want to get to thriving, you know, um, and not letting anyone else have power over you. Not letting anyone else have a um, a grip of power. Um, that you think can stop you from being living you living your full whole life we'll be back after this message the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educated students about today's communication industry but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. I wanted to ask, um, and this is going to be a convoluted question, so I apologize ahead of time. Um, As a young journalist, um, I, I felt passionate about defending the underdog and in any situation, and so... I thought that that might interfere with my ability to be an objective journalist. So I went to the law and spent decades uh, in the law defending the underdog and, and the downtrodden um, through through my law practice, but then came back to journalism. And thank God now with podcasting, I don't have to be objective. But 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 – in your situation where you're a working journalist and a journalism educator and you see things that have to just personally boil you over, 
with with anger. How do you keep your activist side separate from your journalistic side? Or is that a problem? Um, it's it can be a problem if I understand if I'm not sure what I'm being an activist for. And I got into journalism because I thought it was an ideal form of activism because giving people information, valuable information, true information, facts, data, details, that has to be one of the most empowering empowering things that one can do. Um, Because I'm giving you the opportunity to um, make an informed decision. So I always saw that as my, that, that justified me being a journalist for me. Um, and so, um, and then thankfully, I mean, the type of journalism that I've worked in has kind of, that's always been the tenant, right? You want to get to the facts. And so in some respects in my workspace, I've had it much easier than Gail because, um, there was not necessarily, I mean, when you, a ladder system in the sense of, okay, when you want to move to management and people can be away, but there um, is a different environment. Everyone likes to think that they are on the, on the side of getting at the facts and the truth. And so um, I just say, it felt like I had a very different feel um, than what, what I imagine Gail has gone through in her career. Um, so, but as an activist, um, that I want to get to the information and then I see content and I was like, okay, what am I going to do about it? What story are we going to tell? What, what fact, how are we going to dig into it to bring, to bring the real story to light? And so... That to me is the way to channel the feelings. Now it's not like you still don't get beat down and weighed down by it. I mean, you're an active part of what's happening. You're you're recording history, you're commenting on history, you're telling the story that people are gonna tell about their own lives or about their community or about the planet and all of that. I, I take that very seriously. Um, and it feels can be overwhelming and all of that. Um, you're not just telling the story about a cat caught in a tree or whatever. You're, you want to tell stories that offer perspective and all of that. Um, um, that in a very removed way um, influences lives. You know, I, I I can't imagine. I'm sitting here kind of in awe, like I can't imagine being a judge. I can't imagine, you know. Uh, it's people's lives right there, you know, um, hats off to you because there's a lot. People are multifaceted and, um, and you're literally affecting lives on that moment. And for journalists, I think we're a bit removed from that. We don't realize how much we're affecting lives. We need to. But um, so when I see images or stories of being, you know, Media literacy is a thing for me. 
you know, especially I see stories passed around on the internet or something like, no, that is not true. At least stay with the facts. There is enough to be mad about based on the facts. You do not have to read a story that is lying or, you know, or embellishing or just, you know, understanding what satire is, you know. Um, so, but that said, you can't do a story about everything. <laughs> you can't explain everything yourself, you know, and it just, it gets overwhelming. And again, it can go back to that where I just need to sit still. What can I do? And it, um, um, and you just, it's answering that question and then, you know, taking the deep breath and, um, and eating well and, and drinking your water and, and going in there and fighting again, you know, fighting a good fight. Gail, you have a similar situation. You, you, I know on a personal level that you get angry with what you see in the news and events that happen, uh, both locally and nationally. But at the same time, you have to sit on the bench and try to put that aside when you're dealing with a police officer and perhaps a black defendant. Uh, how do you do that? Absolutely. And it's, um, again, I think for me, that is, that goes back to something that, um, that Allison spoke to just earlier, which is that ability. And for me, the absolute necessity to compartmentalize, to understand what my role is in the moment and what my freedoms are, if you will, in other moments. Um, when I put on my robe, I understand that I have certain responsibilities that don't allow me to um, exercise, um, you know, essentially the, the right um, of my personal will, but that rather I am a, an elected official that has a responsibility to everyone in the room. And that first responsibility is objectivity. And so, um, you know, I, I, you know, it's interesting. You said that Tom, because I was just, I'm teaching about a hundred or so judges, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago on um, access to justice. And one of the things that's so important in understanding access to justice is for judges to understand the perspective of the litigants that appear in front of them and the candid assessment that they make about the judicial system, how so many have lost faith in the judicial system, and particularly how communities of color view the justice system and how so many have already shaped in their minds this idea that this justice system is already rigged before they ever walk in the door. So often they don't see judges that represent their communities. They are more often than not having experiences that are not the same as their non-minority counterparts. And by this, I'll tell you, you know, they sit back and they're like sponges. So they're absorbing the whole room. And so if they notice that non-minority litigants are being referred to as ma'am or sir or Mr. or Ms. And then when they're called, they're called by their first name or they're treated dismissively. That 
actually calculates to them. That matters. And to the jurist, they may not think anything about it. They may just feel like, oh, you know, this litigant made me feel more comfortable with them than the others. Or maybe the other litigants were, you know, had a few more birthdays. So I felt I should necessarily, you know, be more deferential to them. Trust me, that non-minority litigant took stock in that experience. And they felt like they were treated less respectfully than their non-minority Litigants that appeared in that same courtroom, same time, with the same or similar offense. They already feel like the fix is in. They feel like that, you know, the the deck is stacked against them. And they don't trust the system that we promised them is going to be fair and impartial to everyone. The idea is that, yes, fair and impartial to everyone but them. And my job is to help restore that faith and that system. And I take that pretty seriously because when they walk in and they see someone that looks like them, that is their first cue that maybe, just maybe, just maybe the fix might not be in. If Even if the outcome isn't what they want, they actually might get a fair shot. Right. I'll be heard. They might be heard. And even if they don't like the outcome, they're more likely than not to respect and to follow the directives of the court if they're just respected in the process. And they're not, they often feel like that's less likely to happen if the person that's seat is elevated and they're staring down looking at them if that person at least looks like them or at least gives some semblance that they respect them and they're going to treat them like a human being if that person does just that they're more likely than not to to follow through on what you're asking them to do and the first step for me is to begin by demonstrating that i realize you're a a human being, you're a person, you deserve to be respected. And no, I don't have any more affinity to one side or another. I am here to be objective and to be fair. And that is my responsibility. I bet you donuts to dollars if more judges did that. Yes, I've got personal opinions about a lot of things, but those opinions are required to be held at bay when I'm not wearing that robe and I'm not on that bench. I can come home and espouse all my personal opinions, but guess what? If it's somebody that, I never ask somebody if they're Republican or Democrat or independent or libertarian. I don't care. And they don't want me to care. I don't care if they, you know, are, you know, on one side of the spectrum or another, my allegiance is to the law. And that's what any litigant would want from any judge who professes to really be a lover of the law and is committed to following it. I promise you, we can infuse a lot more faith in this justice system, this third pillar of democracy. If only we did take that one step to do that. If we did that, then I think that we could really do a whole lot to turn this around. But we can't make any of those important steps as long as we have people marched into our courtrooms and out of our courtrooms and they 
and all we do is confirm their suspicions. And then on the side of the journalists, our job is to not just, is to show it with perspective. If you're always on a certain side of town for a certain kind of story, then you're not actually providing a solid perspective of what's going on in that on that certain side of town. And you are actually um, <clears throat> doing harm to all the people who um, experience your your news, whether they're reading it or you know your whole audience, because you are not accurately reflecting what life is like, because life isn't all one way or the other. And so um, when in my career, I've looked for as a producer, so I'm not in the field, um, but it's the conversation with the with the reporters. It's the conversation before the reporters go out the door. With whom are you going to speak? Like, who's who's the interview? Um, why are we even doing this story? Um, um, who, who whom does it affect? Um, these are questions that. Um, you have to ask yourself, I think with any any industry, but as a journalist, that's what that's what I saw my role as also um, is to represent and know we're not always going to, oh, we need just need to do a fun story or a light story or whatever. Let's let's go over here. And so you can really get to know the people and not just pop in when you to see people at their lowest moment because we do it on the other side of town or when it's um, when we need to speak to um, when we need to, to speak to experts. Uh, okay, make sure we go deep in the Rolodex. Oh, who I met someone, here's someone, oh, you wouldn't have maybe met him because, you know, or her because you didn't ask this organization or you're not a member of that community. Um, making sure that um, especially me working in TV, that um, that what I put on the air, I'm responsible for a whole show that is um, more reflective of the people who, um, of the audience of the area that we cover than not. And we're introducing neighbors to neighbors and we are getting information out and not trying to um, make you feel a way. And that's the other part of that level of objectivity. It doesn't matter what I feel about a story necessarily in terms of, but how I cover, you should know how I vote for my, by my stories. Um, they should have, um, um, they shouldn't be propaganda. Now I might cover a, a, a subject that you didn't think of because you're not a part of the black community or you're not a part of this area of town or whatever, but um, I'm still going to be, it's good, still going to be fair and it's still going to be um, objective or approaching objectivity. Um, so. One last question and, and we have to wrap this up, although I know we could go on for hours. Um, Allison, I, I know your mother was a major influence in your life and you mentioned that she was an activist. What from her have you brought forward? And what from her do you wish to implant in your sons? You have to do, one of the things I saw my mother do is um, work on behalf of the people who might be overrun by the system. Um, and whatever kind of system there was, her was, her work was mostly focused on um, education, um, 
and um, but her work was for those who might have been marginalized and and um, and pushed to the side. And so that's what that's the part that haunts me is: Am I doing everything to empower everything I can to empower people? Am I telling enough? The thing that keeps me up. Uh, am I telling enough of the news stories that can make a difference? Um, how do I do that? How do I express that it's important that whatever I, whatever is important in terms of life in this democracy, uh, in this society, on this earth, those things that are important. How do I, how do I express that? How do I live that? How do I help others live that? So my mom had her way, and um, and so I'd like to think that it was up to me. You know, if I had to find my way, and um, and help my sons and anyone I meet to find theirs. I mean, my, my goal is to be a light so that others uh, can, you know, find theirs and be their, be their own light, you know? So, um, and that's kind of big and esoteric or whatever, but that's what helps guide me. And so one of my tools is journalism and working in a newsroom and sometimes being the one and the only and figuring it out, sometimes making good decisions, um, sometimes making bad decisions on how I was going to respond to um, a challenge or um, a, a slight or racism or sexism or whatever it was, something that uh, was a hurdle for me. Um, it was the, it was, okay, make sure you, um, let that person know they're not better than you. <laughs> so beat them at their own game or whatever that is. Always guess felt like a proving ground, you know. Um, but that was all to the, I can attribute that to my mom and my dad and, um, and my family and my stepfather that you have work to do and no one's to stop you from doing it. So keep going, figure it out. Allison, thank you so much for talking with us and sharing all of your insights. And and uh, Gail, as always, thanks for joining us and, and helping co-host. But it, it just amazes me. My last statement is, uh, besides thank you, is how similar your stories are. Um, different professions, but you're both seeking truth um, and you're both seeking respect. And uh, that's incredibly important. Well, thank you for this opportunity. And um, one of the things of being in this industry and like you said, the similar stories and in the news industry, they're, they're not enough um, uh, women of color or people and um, diverse backgrounds in in management. And the stories, while they're similar, they also can be so divergent. And one of the, um, uh, Dr. Ava 
Thompson Greenwell has a book coming out later this year, the, the Black Women Who, Leading Ladies, The Black Women Who Determine What You See on TV News. Um, and it's her research and she talked with 40 women um, like me trying to figure out um, how to be in this industry and, and diversity and hiring and the impact and on balanced coverage and all of that because different voices at the table matter. It makes, it just makes sense. And so, um, but it's, it's never the really easy road, right? So. No, never, never easy. Gail, you get the last word. I will tell you, Allison, this has been an inspiring, insightful, and wonderfully um, infusing conversation with you today. I am delighted that you have you were willing to share your time with us and and with me in particular to have this conversation it is you've been amazing and your experience just underscores why we should continue to have conversations like this because i am confident that our audience will benefit from your insight and from your wisdom and from all that you've imparted with us today. And so I'm grateful to you. Um, I'm grateful to Tom for allowing me to co-host this with him um, and to continue these very, very important discussions that we've been having. Um, You're amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks everyone. Today we've been talking with journalist and educator, Allison Hunter about race and racism in the news business. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. And Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so Please rate and review our podcast through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have a question or comment about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover in the future, please direct them to me at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.